Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Uh, so let's do a social experiment to get us going, wake us up a little bit this morning. Uh, fill in the blank style, you tell me yes or no, uh, if you agree with this statement. So if I blank, I would make enemies. Okay, you ready? If I, Stephen, refused to watch The Bachelor, I would make enemies. Yes or no? Somebody over there may be like, well, my wife would actually say yes. <laughs> uh, okay, 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 we'll get, we'll get more serious now. You ready? If I said Bill Belichick is not the greatest coach of all time, I would make enemies. Yes? Okay, definitively yes. Okay. Uh, okay, we'll get political. If I did not vote for President Biden, I would make enemies. If I did not vote for President Trump, I would make enemies. Yes or no? What do you think? Probably a little bit. Uh, okay. If, how about this? Uh, a little bit moral issue. If I said no to looking at porn, would I make enemies? No. No, Okay. What if I refuse to accept porn as normative? I would make enemies. Probably in our culture today, yes, that is probably true. Okay, are you ready? Are your hearts open? You're ready for a really hard one? If I did not listen to Taylor Swift, I would make enemies. No? Okay, no. Because you're like, I don't listen to her either. But how about this? If I said that the obsession by teen girls with Taylor Swift is unhealthy, I would make enemies. Probably, right? Yes, that would be pushing it a little bit too far, especially after the Super Bowl where the camera just kept leaving the field to go to a box (laughs) over and over and over again. (laughs) And I don't even know who else was in the box with her. I felt so old. Uh, I was like, am I that dated? I guess I am now. Okay. Uh, So what hopefully you recognize that we just did is that we just named some gods in America in 2024. Celebrities, sex, our country. These are things that people worship in 2024. And... There are other gods like this that are being actively worshipped in our society, in our culture, and people react when their gods are threatened because worship is not neutral. We're in a series looking at the book of Revelation, and today we're going to talk about worship, which is one of the four kind of main themes throughout this book. Here they are, hope, worship, victory and resistance. Four main themes in the book of Revelation. Uh, There are no fancy uh, animals or visions mentioned in those four words either, if you'll notice. Uh, Four themes to remember. Hope, because we believe that Jesus is moving in our world. Worship, because it's clear that there is only one person who is worthy of our worship. War, is happening. But good news, the victory's already been decided. And the whole book's purpose is to disciple us as dissidents, people who are actively resisting 
against the enemy. That's what this book is all about. So here's what you need to know as we read this book. The hero is Jesus. Good job. The main event is Jesus' death and resurrection. Not the end. Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the main event. The enemy is anyone who demands devotion, allegiance, worship. Because the only one we worship is Jesus. And Revelation isn't a book filled with secret plans. It's clear. We know who wins. The enemy know who wins. There's no secrets in that. It's declaration of victory. Okay? That's what the book of Revelation is all about. So let's jump in. Revelation 4.1. Then I looked and I saw a door standing open in heaven in the same voice that I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. And the voice said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. Let me address just two quick things in that last sentence that uh, the voice says uh, that have brought a lot of thoughts over time uh, in the church. Come up here. Up is not a Google Maps pen. Okay, it's not a statement of this is where heaven is. It's above us. It's another floor higher than where we're standing at. That's not what we're being told. We're not being told where we need to go. What we're being told in the people who heard all this originally would have recognized this. What's being referenced is the Old Testament. Moses and God are having a conversation and Moses says he wants to see God. And what does God say to him? He says, Okay, hey Moses, come up Mount Sinai and I'll show you who I am. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, the Old Testament prophets are worshiping, they're praying, and then what happens? God takes them up and shows them visions. Anybody reading this in the original context would have recognized that right away and been like, wait. He's connecting it to what's already happened. He's one in the line of people who have been brought up into God's presence, not a geographical location. So come up here and I will show you what happens after this. After what exactly? Well, the good news is is that I do think in the chapters we're going to read today, it tells us what after this, what this is. But for right now, what I want to remind us of is something that Sarah talked about two weeks. She laid a rope down across the stage. Anybody remember that? And she walked along the rope and she told us about something. And so what she talked about is this idea that the view of Revelation that's called continuing fulfillment. And so she said that, yes, the visions, and I should have just brought a rope instead of like pretending like I had it here. But I didn't. I was lazy. So the the visions and the prophecy of Revelation have happened. Yes. And the visions and the prophecies of Revelation are happening. Yes. And the visions and the prophecies of Revelations will happen. It's happening continuously throughout time. 
So it's not when is it going to happen. It's not either or. It's both and. And so the good news is that we don't have to be obsessed and worried about trying to figure out if this earthquake or that war or the thing that that world leader said is a sign of the end. We don't need to be worried about those things. Jesus never told us to go and to make conspiracy theorists and uh, apocalyptic experts and detectives. He said, go and make disciples. That's what we need to be focused on, not deciphering some secret code. And so this morning, we're starting into the visions. It gets weird this morning. I'll just let you know. Uh, it's what's going to happen. There's lots of eyes, and you don't know which one to look at. But I'm excited about it because it's a picture of worship. And I think when we start to uh, figure out what it is that's actually going on, our connection to Jesus deepens and grows because worship is not neutral. So let's pray. Jesus, I just start us off by just acknowledging what I've just repeated multiple times. That worship is not neutral and that we want to worship you. And so we just come into this place acknowledging that we struggle as humans with worshiping other things, other people, uh, other systems, with putting them in place, in a place that's in front of you. So we just ask for forgiveness for that today. We acknowledge that we need to constantly be retraining our eyes on you. And I pray that you will come this morning and give us grace to be able to do that. Help us to see you in your fullness and to know the one who is worthy. So we give you this space and we ask for you to come and to move. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Revelation 4 and 5. Or you can read it from the screens or your phones, as long as that's the only thing you're doing on your phone. Um, because I want to help us to not get caught up in things we don't need to get caught up in. Two numbers that are going to be referenced a lot in these two chapters. The number seven means complete or whole. Don't worry about what the seven are. Just remember that it means complete or whole. And 12 refers to two things. It refers to the 12, 12, 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples, which is a reference to the church. So 12 or 24 or 144,000, which are all multiples of 12, are referencing the complete people of God. So keep that in mind. Uh, that God is, we're being told that God's working through the past, the present, and the future in bringing people to himself. So let's start with Revelation 4.2. Here's what it says. And instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting in it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. 
and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them, and they were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder, and in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. And in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a human face, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. And whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay down their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. I told you it gets a little strange. Eyes inside and out, what what is going on here? Uh Before we go too far down our imaginative trails, hopefully, uh, remember that this is a letter written to disciple dissidents. It's written to people who live in the Roman Empire, a place where the emperor is worshipped, where religion affected and was welcomed in every part of life, meaning there is no separation between sacred and secular. That makes it very different than what we put up as a goal in our society. And that the religious practices and worship were an essential part of politics. So the Roman, Empire, the Roman emperor didn't just have a temple, although he did. And people didn't just bow when they came into his presence, although they did. He demanded to be worshipped. People would enter into his presence and say, Caesar is Lord, and then throw themselves on the ground and worship him. You could choose in the Roman Empire to worship Zeus. You might die if you did not worship Caesar. There's a difference here to the importance. So think about how Christians are going to be viewed in this, in this kind of scenario. In the eyes of both Roman officials and everyday people, this is how Christians were viewed. They were seen as the cause of a decline of religion. Imagine that. A challenge to the empire's unity. And they were seen as violating the traditional standard of morality in Rome. Picture that. Think about how in our culture we as religious folks might view people who would fit that category. They're not going to be very popular, are they? So when the people in the seven churches 
heard this vision read in their church, they would have seen it through their lived experiences as Asian Christians living in the Roman Empire. And they would have immediately noticed things that are not neutral to them. Things like thrones, a wealthy king god, continual worship of that king god, pledging allegiance to this king god through throwing crowns, giving him all your wealth, and bowing before him, giving him all of your worship. For the churches that are hearing this, I would imagine one of the first thoughts they would have had is, if Caesar figures this out, we might all die. Because in Rome, worship is never neutral. Now, we live in a different time, in a different place. But friends, let me just say, worship isn't neutral for us either. And this vision, I think, can help center our theology of worship by giving us guidance on what worship actually is. And here's what this vision tells us. It tells us that worship is for all of creation. Every single person. Uh, The four living creatures, you're wondering what they represent. They represent all of creation. Uh, Animals, fish, birds, even us. Uh, all of creation worshiping before the throne. I don't completely understand how all that works, so I'm not going to go into it. But I'm just saying what it's telling us, that that's what the reality is. Worship is for all of creation, and worship is what the church does. We are worshipers. We're created to worship. And throne room worship is continual. It's day after day, night after night. It doesn't pause. It doesn't stop. It doesn't take a break. It's constant. It's necessary. Worship isn't the boring part. Sorry, guys. But it's a necessary part. It's important. It has to be happening. And the reality is is that we don't often reflect this in how we spend our time, right? We can be honest about this, which is why in the church calendar, they've created spots to kind of poke us and help us to remember that. One of those is happening right now, the season of Lent, that goes from Ash Wednesday, which happened on Wednesday this past week, when you guys were out on your Valentine's dates. Oh yeah, guys, it was Valentine's last Wednesday, so a little late there. Sorry, I didn't give you your heads up last week, Uh, but... While you were on those, Lent was beginning, and then it runs all the way to Easter. And it's a time for us to be able to kind of course correct, to focus our eyes on the cross, on the necessity of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. It's time to be able to to re-engage. And during this time, many Christians spend it giving up things, And we'd like to encourage you to also take up things because just giving up things just gives you more free time. And you guys don't need more free time. You need less free time. So pick up things. Uh, So here's what we want to encourage during Lent. Uh, First is fasting from social media. And honestly, I'm going to encourage you to do this throughout this entire year. So get ready for it. 
Because in a politically charged 2024, you don't need to be in the echo chamber of anger that is social media. So take advantage of this excuse and say, I'm just going to opt out and not listen to that. Uh, fast from social media and give yourself some time. And with that time, instead of laying in bed and scrolling, why don't you do a practice in the morning and in the evening? Lectio 365 is an app that gives you morning prayer and evening prayer. And it's time to read the Bible, to pray, and to just kind of pause and allow yourself to refocus on Jesus as you start your day and end your day. Um, I do it regularly. I really appreciate uh, the way that they do it. It has built-in pauses, which I need because I don't like to built in pause. Uh, and that's helpful for me. Uh, if you have kids, Lectio for families is great. Uh, I do it with our youngest from time to time, especially at bed. And it does help her to kind of focus on Jesus and get rid of all the other junk from school uh, throughout the day. 2024 is a good year to have less media and more Jesus. So let's set up habits that reflect this reality that worship is what we do. It's who we've been created to be. And here's the third thing about worship. Worship is God-centric. If you're a doodler, as we were reading that, you may have started to picture it in your brain. It's concentric circles going out from the throne. One circle after another after another, and it keeps building out until it's so far that you can't see it. The whole universe going out from the throne, which means that the, the, the activity at the center of the universe is worship. Just allow that to sink in. The thing that matters the most in anything is worship. And in this picture, this vision, we're not told a clear picture of God. We're told that it's bright, that there's thunder and lightning. Uh, we're we are given gems that are like around to give us like some picture of something. Uh, it's very pretty, but we don't have a clear picture of God here. But the good news is that God made himself known because in our current state, we can't fully picture who he is. And that's what comes in Revelation 5. Because it's one thing to worship a God that you can't fully see. It's another thing to actually know his name and know what he came to do. Because it matters what you worship. Because worship is not... Good job. Okay, chapter 5. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne, and there was writing on the inside and outside... And it was sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and to open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open it and read it. And so I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping, look! The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. 
He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. And he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, you are worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and to open it for you are slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And I'm going to pause there for a minute. The lamb with seven of everything, meaning he's whole and complete. The lamb that looked as if he had been slaughtered. The lamb was the only one who was able to do what no one else could. Hey, John, come up here, and I'll show you what happens after this, this is what it's referencing. This, what the lamb has done that no one else could do. You want a timeline point for this vision? It's right there. It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The lamb who came and took what no one else could take who took it upon him and gave what was necessary in order to be able to open up what no one else could be able to open. The cross is that spot. It's pointing to the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, the heir of David's throne, who has won. So this is the point of this entire vision that the lamb has won. And so why would you ever worship someone else? Someone who's not worthy, who couldn't do what Jesus could. We'll talk about the scroll. Don't worry about that. Don't get your detective's hat on. Uh, Save that for another day. What matters now is that the lamb could open it. Friends, worship is not neutral because it changes us. Worship is a whole body, whole life act of thanksgiving and surrender to a God who is worthy, and it changes us. Worshiping God, when others around us are worshiping the empire, or the emperor, or the president, or Taylor Swift, makes us dissidents. Because when you're worshiping God, you are actively rejecting all the other gods of this world. And you're joining in 
with thousands upon thousands and millions upon millions who are around the throne crying out and saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb because he died. What a plot twist. Not because of his brutality. Everyone expects the most powerful one to be brutal, right? But it's not the powerful lion who wins the bloody battle. It's the lamb who wins with nonviolence through sacrifice. Who would have saw that one coming? It's the lamb who ties together all of God's movement throughout history. From the beginning in Exodus, when God goes and saves the Israelites in the Passover liberation through to the cross, when he comes and brings forgiveness for our sins. Worthy is the lamb who brings life when empires and emperors always leave a trail of destruction and death. Craig Keener wrote that worship is not the invention of nice things to say about God. It's the recognition of who God already is, what he has already done or promised to do, and how worthy he is of our praise. This morning, as we worship, are we worshiping the one who is worthy? You know, worship is not neutral. And I do mean that. You'll be changed if you choose to worship Jesus. You're changed when you choose to worship a lot of other things, too. And it's important for us to recognize that. The things that we worship affect us. And so if we're choosing to worship Jesus, why would we hold back? Why would we withdraw? Why would we not just acknowledge him to be the only one who is worthy? And just join in and say blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the church joins in and says, amen and amen. Mm -hmm.